Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. How Jesus reveals his glory on earth is what we're going to be looking at today. Last week we began a series that I've titled Living Life in a Winsome Way. And we pointed out that winsome is not a a word that we use a lot. Winsome means attractive or appealing in appearance or character. It's something to be desired, something to be wanted. And I believe God wants us to live our lives as Jesus followers in an attractive or appealing way, one that draws people to Jesus, not a way that pushes people away from Jesus. So what does it mean to live life in a winsome way so that people want what we have, those of us that are followers of Christ? That's what we're going to be looking at throughout this series. A series about reaching out to the people that we love who are presently irreligious, unchurched, pre-churched, or or maybe they walked with Jesus at some other time and they've, they've gotten away from walking with him on a daily basis. There's an inherent assumption that I have here that we sincerely care about the people in our sphere of influence, about their soul, about where they're going to spend eternity. And you and I should be concerned about where people are going to spend forever because God cares about where they're going to spend forever. What we're talking about is is bearing witness in in the living of our lives and and the telling of our story. Every one of us that's inhabited by the Spirit of God is called to do this, to, to bear witness to what Jesus is doing in our lives. And as I often say, using words, if necessary. Last week we considered why God establishes His people on earth, and this week we're going to see that it is through His people that Jesus reveals his glory. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit, and he ties it directly to you and me being willing to share our story. He says in Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit is directly tied to you and me being willing and able to tell people, to show people the story of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in our lives. One of the most important things I think here is to connect with the heart of God as we think about the people within our sphere of influence and our motives to pray for them. We need to realize and to remember how much God loves these people and that we're seeking to tell our story to them. God loves everyone the same. And this is one of those things theologically that I I find very hard to understand because we live in a different world. We live in a world where relationally, most times love is not unconditional. How how many of you are parents? Did you always show unconditional love for your children? We can endeavor to do that, but we're we're, we're imperfect parents. Now, it's easy to show unconditional love to your grandkids, right? That's easy there. But oftentimes, we have a hard time understanding unconditional love because our parents sometimes, don't know about you, but oftentimes, the love was conditional. We had to please our parents. Our parents loved us when we were good boys and good girls. 
and uh, we didn't necessarily feel loved at, at other times. Some of us had parents that were, were not, um, didn't do good things, and we need to recognize that. But God helps us to overcome that, doesn't he? So we need to remember how much God loves people. He loves the spirit-led believer. He loves the nominal Christian, the pre-Christian, the irreligious, the agnostic, and even the atheist. God just loves people. This is reflected in that most famous of scriptures that you hear me say often, that you see with the, the, the baseball games and stuff like that. John 3.16, for God so what? He loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that next verse, verse 3, 17, oftentimes says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that he might save the world. He came into the world to provide salvation. And the apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that this isn't dependent upon us. He said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were, he didn't wait until we were good boys and good girls and then decide to die for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our salvation, our appropriation of, of Christ's grace and mercy doesn't depend upon how good we are. It depends on how good he is. It depends upon the finished work that he did on the cross at Calvary. So please hear me here. You can't do anything to make God love you more and you can't do anything to make God love you less. He just loves you. It's in his nature to love you. This deep, reaching love of God is violently opposed by our enemy and God's enemy, Satan. There's a cosmic war going on, and, and you might be sitting there thinking in warfare there's spoils, there's, there's things to be gained, whether it be territory or, or other things. And you know, what are the spoils of this warfare? Well, one of the spoils of this warfare is worship. It's glory. It's that which people will give their allegiance or their praise to. You know, some people worship money or they worship material things. Other people worship their job. Other people worship their sports teams, like the Seattle Seahawks or the... Ohio State Buckeyes. We worship our sports teams. We were all created to worship something, to adore something, to place something in first place in our lives. And the real issue is what or in whom are we going to glory in? Satan will do anything to keep you and me from glorifying Jesus because Satan hates that. He hates that. You look at his history. Lucifer, the shining one, the chief among the angels, the leader of the praise in heaven. He rebelled against God, and he took a third of the angels with him, we're told in the scriptures, and he fell. He desired the worship. He desired the honor. He desired the glory, and he's still at it trying to keep God from being glorified. Let's look at Paul's prayer to his fellow Christians at the church at Ephesus, and I want you, as I'm reading these words here in, in Ephesians 3, to think about your own journey. The apostle Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the, all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. Talking here about it's hard for us to understand God's love. The Apostle Paul, even in his day, was trying to help people understand. He knew that it was hard for people to understand, to grasp about God's love. He says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So why again? So that you 
may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We need to understand the depth of God's love for us. And then he goes into this beautiful doxology. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? He wants us to understand the love of God so that God can be glorified. So how does Jesus get glory on the earth? Turn to the person next to you and say, tag, you're it. (laughs) You're going to understand that in the next few minutes. How does Jesus get glory? I want you to think about with me about how the enemy, how the enemy would want to take your heart out of praising Jesus. Why does he want to take you out? Why does he want to wipe that out of you? Why is the enemy so concerned about your desire for God? Well, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4, he said, Above all else, guard the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And what you and I desire is a big deal to God. And so that makes it a big deal to Satan in this warfare. The gospel opens with the glory of Jesus right in the first chapter of John. Look in John chapter 1. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his Glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Later in John's gospel, Jesus, in in John chapter 17, in the Garden of Gethsemane there, he's talking to the Father, he's praying to the Father, and Jesus says there, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's how the gospel opens. It opens talking about the glory. And Jesus referring referring all the way back to the the foundation of the world, the glory that he had with God the Father. In the book of Revelation, John peers into the future, and in Revelation 5, he's writing about the end of all things. And in 5.12, he says this, in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So the New Testament opens with the glory of Jesus and ends with the glory of Jesus. And the critical question is, how is Jesus glorified on earth in the days between the Gospels and the end of time described here in Revelation? How do people in our, in our families, in our workplaces, in our park, in our cities where we live, if we're not here all year round, how do they see the glory of Jesus today? It is the answer to this crucial question that I want us to look at the remainder of our time together this morning. You see, the Lord has always chosen to reveal his glory in the midst of 
and through his people. Last week we talked about a theology of blessing, and and in that message I made the point that the reason God so longs to bless your life and mine isn't because we're such wonderful people. It's because he wants to use God-touched and and God-blessed lives to open up conversations about his goodness. When unsure, irreligious, pre-Christian, atheistic, agnostic people walk into a room or get into a hot tub, where there are people who genuinely love one another, who feel grace toward one another, and care about one another, they're supposed to look at this and wonder, what's up here? What's up with this? There's something different about these people. And that's what I believe the theology of blessing in the scripture is created to do. The glory of God's face shining on us will be noticed by and attract other people to God himself. And we see that in the psalm that we used as a call to worship this morning. We see the glory of God's face shining on us. The first two verses of Psalm 67 there. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. Under the old covenant described in the Old Testament in which the psalm was written, the glory of God was made manifest to the gathered people of God when they worshiped and when they surrendered their lives to him. When God was honored and God was adored in their eyes and in corporate gatherings, his glory fell among them, oftentimes in the form of fire. They were led by a pillar of fire that went ahead of them or remained over the tabernacle at night. When Solomon prayed his dedicatory prayer over the temple there in Jerusalem, the fire of God fell and the place was so full of the glory of God that the priest couldn't even get into the room. When Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel and he's telling the people to stop worshiping the false god Baal and worship the Lord, he prays and again the fire of God falls on the mountain and the people say, the Lord, he is God. Now I want to draw attention to a subtle distinction here in the, in the first couple clauses, that first verse that we just read. The first clause is, may God be gracious to us. The second clause, may he make his face shine on us. And I think it's important for us to understand this. The first clause here has to do with the wonders of God's works of grace in human hearts. It has to do with the gracious hand of God being at work in and among us. But the second clause, I believe, I believe it describes something more. I think make God's face shine upon us. If, if you look at the way the Hebrew is constructed there, it describes relational intimacy, a face-to-face relationship. The wonder of God's desire for a face-to-face relationship with his people. This is what picture of what happens when we are alone with God and his spirit bears witness to your spirit that he is right there before you, pressing his soul his holy, his self-emptying person, his other-oriented love into your heart and into your mind. And I think it's really important to distinguish between this working of God's hands, this giving of grace, and the working of his heart shining through us in relational intimacy. This face reflects what's happening in the heart. I love being gracious to and and blessing my children. I've got three children and and two grandchildren, really four children, because you have to count my my, my son and son in love, uh, Amin, who's married to my daughter, Julia, there on the, on the left. You know, I love being gracious to them. But you know what I love even more? I can be gracious to them from California. 
But what I really love is being with them face to face. And we just got this picture like a day or so ago from, and I told Lou, that's a perfect example, being face to face with that. I mean, how can you not love being face to face with that? Being face to face with her, it's different. I love being their papa, but I can do a whole lot better with it when I'm face to face, when I'm in a close relationship with them. And that's a picture I'm trying to paint for us here. I think too many of us settle for God's hand of blessing, and we don't press into the presence of God. We don't allow him to make himself known to us in a face-to-face way. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit must make himself known. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And what we have to do is we have to be available for this. There's a beautiful picture of the theology of blessing in the sixth and seventh verses of this psalm. And by the way, he mentions the nations and the people eight times in the intervening five verses. I'm thinking it might be a little bit important there when he mentions the nations eight times there in five verses. But let's read this uh, together and look at this theology of blessing. Read it with me. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Do you see it here? God's people are blessed. Others see it, and the result is that the others respect. The others fear God. Isn't that magnificent? God blesses us so that the ends of the earth can hear about him and then be drawn to him. That's, again, theology of blessing. So let's look at how this plays out under the New Covenant with New Testament temples. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul was telling the folks there, and he tells us today, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. In the Old Covenant community, when the Lord revealed his glory on earth, God came down to a building or tabernacle or the temple. In the Old Covenant community of God's people, the temple was the central physical place where God gathered them and and, and displayed his glory to them. The principle was that God reveals himself and displays his glory in and through the temple. In the New Covenant community, we are God's building. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are God's building. Your body and my body are the temple he lives in for the display of his glory on this earth. And Paul writes that each of us as individuals, because we have come to know Jesus, the Lord's Holy Spirit lives in us. When we come to faith in Christ, he puts his spirit in us as a seal of our redemption. He puts the paraclete, the comforter within us to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. He makes his spirit available to us there. And our bodies are temples of the spirit. Our individual lives are the building of God, the temple of God, and when we gather together for worship as we are this morning here in Forest Hall, we're gathered together as a dwelling place for God. God glories in your life as you spend time with him in relational intimacy, and he glories in our worship here when we come together to praise him in intimate worship. Later in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us again, He repeats, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. And I believe honestly that if more more Christians believe that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we would do our bodies less harm. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul again talks about the building of God, your life and mine built together. When he says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. As the spirit of Jesus lives in your life and mine, we gather in his name and faith, believing that there's a sense in which he draws near and he anoints the atmosphere. But this anointing of God isn't just for preachers. It's not just for Sunday school teachers. It's for everybody. It's for all of God's people. He wants the word to be alive and electric in all of our hearts. This love and this joy that God pours out in your heart and mine is to be an attraction point for other people. When people walk into the room full of God's people and they're, and they're joyful and they're loving, it's attractive and it draws people to him. And this is a big deal to God. It's why I believe church should be fun. You know, I don't know about you, but I've been in some church services that you wonder how the whole community must have died. It's so sad. Church should be joyful. Now, there is a time to be, to be reverent. There's a time to be solemn, that kind of stuff. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about there's a time for everything under the season. But, but church should be fun. It shouldn't be a drag. A lot of people outside the church, I believe, have a wrong understanding of church. And whose fault is that? It's oftentimes ours. Oftentimes it's ours as our, as our services haven't been fun. Or as our services have, have pushed people away. As people say, why do I need to go to that? I don't want to be brought down. You know, I need to hear hope. As I said last week, the gospel is good news. Good news. We are God's letter. You and I are God's letter. We're bearing his message to the world. And this message is, is written in love on tablets on our hearts. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth, and by the way, Corinth in the first century was very well known for its decadence and for its sexual immorality. And what Paul is saying that even in the, this horrible, horrible atmosphere, God's love can burn in you. And, it can, and he can pour it out into your hearts and he can stamp the image of his love on you so that you can be a beacon of light to the people even in the midst of such a decadent and corrupt area. In the Old Covenant, Moses got the tablets of stone that had been inscribed with the finger of God. And Paul now says it's not tablets of stone. It's, it's the Holy Spirit, it's holy love. It's written not on tablets of stone, but it's written on hearts. And written on your hearts, pressed into your heart by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 36, which was written 600 years before Jesus came in the flesh. In the year 587, God told him to write these words. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This passage describes the beauty of a Christian life lived out in a city, even like Corinth, or like Seattle, or like Abbotsford. Notice how the glory of God is supposed to flow out of us as we continue here in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. He says, now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, he's talking here about the law, the law of Moses. If the ministry that brought death 
came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Paul's embarking here. He's, he's, he's trying to show these folks, that the new covenant is so much greater than the old covenant. The old covenant was to point us toward Christ, and now that Christ is here, he's pointing at the new covenant. He says that the ministry that condemns men is glorious, and we're all guilty under the law. There's none that are righteous, no, not one, we're told. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now, in comparison with the surpassing glory. In other words, you know, what was the Old Testament? That's glory, but guess what? It's nothing compared to the surpassing glory that has come with Jesus Christ. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory which lasts? Jesus living in a human heart. You may remember back in Deuteronomy, Moses, when he came out of the tent of meeting from having been face to face with God, his face shone. They didn't have sunscreen or something. You know, he didn't, you know, it's like, you know, Moses put on sunglasses. You know, we can't stand this, this, this glory. So, so Moses, what he did is he put a veil on because the glory was so much shining off of his face. He had to cover his face with a veil. And the truth is when you and I get alone with Jesus and he presses his love in on us by the Spirit, we should reflect that. Our face, our countenance, you know, everything about us should reflect the time we spend with the presence of God. I could probably talk to you, and I bet each one of you could tell a, a story of some, at some point in your life where you had been with someone, you'd met someone, a total stranger, and there was just something about it, and you knew, you knew that they were a believer. You knew that they had Christ in their life. And that's what we're talking about here. Hopefully that's happened where people have met you, people who are complete strangers, and they've been able to tell in your life and mine that Christ is in our lives. Paul's saying that just like Moses' face reflected the glory of God, when you and I get along with Jesus regularly, people should see his glory in our lives. That's why Paul said in Romans 15, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that pretty well covers it, doesn't it? Do it all, why? Do it all for the glory of God. And going back to John 17, Jesus said there to his father, again, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells his father, he says, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Father, we're one, and glory has come to me through them. Now, now this is cool. This is really, I love this part of the scripture there because Jesus there in John chapter 17, he's already been talking to the father here, and you've got to look at the, at the rest of it there to put in context Jesus had already said when he was praying for his people, he wasn't just praying for Peter and the boys and, Mary, and the Marys and Joanna, the ladies that were following him. He told the Father, I'm praying for you. He's praying for you guys. He said, I'm praying for those all down through the, down through the ages who are going to believe in me. So Jesus' prayer there crosses eons of eons of time. And what he's saying, and glory has come to me through them. He's not just talking about those people there in the first century. He's saying glory's coming to him through you and me as he looks down through time, as we, as we live lives that glorify him, that draw people to him. That's beautiful, I think. Glory's to come to Christ through you and through me. So let's look at how new covenant temples respond. Again, in 2 Corinthians 
Paul says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We, the new covenant temples, make the choice to love Jesus, to faith Jesus with all of our heart. And when we have that first love issue settled, and frankly, that's what it means to come to him in a deep and intimate way. When we have that first love issue settled, we will gladly and willingly submit to the Holy Spirit's work of transformation in our lives. Others will notice this, and they will be attracted to this. I love the message translation uh, that Eugene Peterson gives us of Romans 12, where it reads this way. It says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. The Holy Spirit superintends this process of changing us into the likeness of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. It is a process. And the most important thing is to be walking in the process. You know, God's not looking for perfection. That's the goal. But but he's looking what direction you're going. Are you following? Are you walking towards Christ? Are you walking with Christ? Are you walking with Christ? You and I are going to make a mistake this week. I guarantee it. I promise you, every single one of us will do something dumb or stupid this week. All God's people do dumb things. So why don't you repeat that with me? All God's people do dumb things. We do it, so don't be surprised. But God's not looking for perfection. And aren't you glad that we serve a God that understands and loves us and forgives us? We don't go out looking to sin. We shouldn't. But God understands, and he's sitting there waiting, waiting for us to turn, just like, just like the prodigal son that I mentioned last week turned back and went back to his father. The question is, are you leaning into Christ? Some of what the Lord does as he changed us isn't going to be fun. I promise you the the result will be great, but the journey is not always going to be fun. The journey should be joyful, though. We're called to have joy despite our circumstances. That's a whole other teaching of Paul in the book of Philippians. But what he's after here is a consuming desire to glorify Jesus while we're on this earth, despite and no matter what our circumstances. And here's why I think God allows hard things to come to us, myself included. We all have this wiring for self-interest. That little five-year-old up there, no one had to teach her how to be selfish, okay? No one had to teach you how to be, how to be selfish. It's just part of our, you know, our self-interest is, is what we start out with. We, we have to be taught to share, and we have to t- be taught to worry, about, to worry about others and such. The Lord wants to take us through things so that he can show us just how much selfishness actually smells to him. He doesn't like selfishness. He'll walk us through things that are tough in order to get us free of this self, selfish thing. So as New Testament temples... 
We are responsible to respond to God with a yes, even though it's unpleasant at the time. We're called to respond to yes, Lord, just as Jesus did in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. I want to draw your attention to one more scripture as we close and transition into the communion part of our service together. In 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 10, he says, Each one of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. New covenant temples permit the Holy Spirit to lead them, even into areas where it may not be fun, but they do so with joy. Permit him to lead you. I'll leave you with this question to ponder this week in your time with the Lord. Is the glory of the Lord reflected in your life. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.